Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. We've got a great show today. Northeastern University President Joseph E. Aoun, he is going to join us to discuss what it takes to prepare people for a changing workforce transformed by smart machines. He's the author of a book called Robot Proof. And we get into that very concept of how we robot-proof ourselves for the future. And a little later on, of course, of course, Vancouver's high cost of living is well documented, but does the city ultimately deliver on its prices? Remax managing broker Wayne Ryan breaks down a new report exploring the concept of livability across Canada and where Vancouver stacks up. Before we get to our guests, though, a few events to tell you about. The Cannabis 2.0 event, May 22nd at the Shangri-La Hotel. We're going to take a B2B look at what the future holds, especially as the edibles will be coming available. They'll be legal in the fall. And we're also going to be talking ride-sharing with Lyft. That is May 29th at the Van City Theater. More info on those events and more at BIV.com slash events. Now let's get on with our guests. Our next guest is the president of Northeastern University, which is in the midst of opening a campus right here in Vancouver. Joseph Iaun is also the author of Robot Proof, Higher Education in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. His book delves into how technology is changing the way we work and how we can work to address that. Joseph, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. So early on in the book, you bring up the concept of humanics. Tell me a little bit about what humanics is and how it can be applied in our daily lives. Well, as you know, uh, we are uh, in the middle of uh, general transformation uh, called the AI revolution. And AI is transforming our lives. Uh, We expect up to 50% of the jobs we know to disappear in the next 20 years. Uh, the economists are debating whether it's going to be 50, 40, 30, whatever it is, it's going to be substantial. There would be also new jobs being created. And we don't know whether the jobs being created will be enough in the short run to compensate for the jobs lost. But that's another point. With respect to how we are going to thrive in the AI world, we, uh, we need to become robot-proof. And how do we become robot-proof? By mastering what I call humanics. And what is humanics? Humanics is the integration and the mastery of uh, and the understanding of three literacies. First, uh, you know, I'm saying that every learner, every person who is has an education, has to have a knowledge of uh, the machines and how they work. And that's what I call uh, tech literacy. Then the the person would need to have also uh, data literacy, namely a mastering, the the person needs to master uh, the sea of information, the data generated uh, by these machines, need to understand how to navigate uh, the data. And third is human literacy. And human literacy is what we uh, humans can do that machines cannot duplicate. And it's the ability to be innovative, to be entrepreneurial, uh, to the ability to uh, work with people in teams, the ability to be empathetic, the ability to uh, uh, be culturally agile with work with diverse groups, uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So humanics 
will essentially is a way of telling you, you need to understand machines. You, and the, you need to understand how they, know, how they work, what they generate, but focus also on what we humans can do that machines cannot do. If we compete with machines on their turf, we lose. If they compete with us humans on our turf, they lose. And therefore, we are saying focus on what on understanding machines, the human-machine interface, but concentrate on what makes us unique as, as species, and that's a human literacy. So humanics is the integration of the three literacies, tech literacy, data literacy, and human literacy. And in your book, you bring up an interesting example uh, with regards to the IBM supercomputer Watson was playing on Jeopardy, and he failed to kind of conceive about the context of one of the questions, and he gave kind of a funny answer in the category of U.S. cities. He answered, what is Toronto? Um, one of the things that you're bringing up and leading into that, though, is the importance of experiential learning. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, so for instance, if we start looking at uh, human literacy, and, so, and we look at innovation, entrepreneurship, uh, the ability to work with people in teams, the ability to be empathetic, uh, culturally agile, etc. You can study books and books about that, but it doesn't make you an innovator. It doesn't make you a person who knows how to work with other people, etc. This is where the experience comes uh, to the fore. And experience uh, and the experiential learning is the integration of what you learn in a classroom and what you practice in the real, real world. It's the integration of the classroom experience with the world experience. You know, sometimes it's referred to as a work-based learning, whatever it is. But when you start doing that in a real-world setting, you know, when you put your learning to use in a real-world setting, you are working with other people. You start understanding their body language. You start understanding how they approach an issue. How they approach an issue. You start understanding, you know, what makes them excited. You understand also what you're good at, what they are good at. You also see gaps, and you say, based on these gaps, I think I can launch something new that will help society or that would be for profit or not for profit, etc., etc. So the ex experience, the experiential learning will give you this edge as a learner. But also, it, it, there is something that is specific to us humans that machines do not know how to duplicate. And it, we, we take our knowledge uh, from a domain to another and we apply it to domains that are completely uh, remote from the, furious, from the domain uh, we uh, have learned the, the, and where, where we have acquired our knowledge. This is called transfer. We know how to transfer our knowledge from a context to another. Machines do not know how to do it. We humans do it very well. So if you start looking at what I said before, you know, humanics is an integration of three literacies and you have to concentrate on understanding machine and what we humans do that machines cannot do. Experience is also something that we have and we do well. We, through experience, we refine our knowledge and transfer it and apply it to domains that we haven't studied for necessarily. And Machines do not know how to transfer, to do the wide transfer from a domain to another domain completely remote.
one of the other things that you point out in the book is that you know humanity right now does have a lot of fear of the robots at this point but you go through history and say that there were many points throughout history where this persisted but do you think that there's something unique going on right now do you think there are legitimate reasons for people to feel this sort of anxiety especially when we think about the jobs that we might have or may need to retrain for down the road the anxiety is uh, well motivated you know we are going to become obsolete on a daily basis and we will have to educate ourselves we will have to retool we will have to reskill ourselves or upskill ourselves so and it's not easy however what makes it even more so is the fact that you know we don't have a system that is going to help us redefine ourselves or relearn or retool. So higher education in in general has not focused on lifelong learning as a core mission. And, you know, we looked at it as almost a second-class operation. And if it is the case that now the uh, lifelong learners, those who need to be re-educate themselves, to reskill themselves, are already the, the overwhelming majority. So they are not fully served by us in higher education. And we need to do a better job integrating a higher lifelong learning as part of our society. The second aspect, if, if I may here, is that, you know, we don't give incentives yet for people to re-educate themselves or reskill themselves. What, what kind of incentives? For instance, you know, if you are self-employed, you need to redefine yourself and you you know you, it's going to you have to incur expenses our system is not allowing you to do it easily similarly when we are looking at uh, our policies they are not fully there yet so for instance some countries have launched a lifelong learning account for every citizen singapore has that some scandinavian countries are working on that saying that every citizen when she needs to re-educate uh, herself, she will have this lifelong learning account that will allow you uh, allow her to do it. So we, we're not there. So that's why you have an anxiety. The system of higher education is, is not geared to providing that yet fully. The, we don't have policies that will help you uh, pay for uh, your re-education uh, there uh, at the government level. And third, employers who are not doing enough. And frankly, employers are doing less and less now in terms of lifelong learning. And it is due to the fact that uh, the uh, tenure of an employee is getting shorter and shorter. We hear very much kind of maybe millennial generations, uh, they do jump from job to job more frequently. But the other thing that you guys are getting at here in the book, though, is what exactly employers are looking for. And I'm wondering if you can offer some insights about what, say, the C-suite is looking for. Yeah, we survey employers constantly and, uh, you know, we, we ask what kind of talent you're looking for. And they are not looking in a talent that knows only the technology or, you know, have a knowledge of tech literacy or data literacy, but they are focusing on somebody who is able to go beyond, namely understand machines, understand tech, understand data, but also has the ability to think 
outside the box, has has the ability to work with other people in a culturally diverse environment, has the ability to uh, motivate people, etc., etc. So let me give you an example that will illustrate that. You know, the, at some point in various uh, cities, they you know there was something called the boot camp, a boot camp for coding. And those boot camps for coding became very popular because they promised you to, after six months of uh, uh, training, uh, you become a coder and then you start with a salary of $85,000, etc., a very strong uh, high salary. However, when we surveyed employers, they said we, st- we recruited those uh, graduates from the boot camps, but we stopped doing that, many of them, and we were surprised why, because they said they know how to code and how to uh, start coding, but they don't know how to go beyond that, problem solve, work with other people, the ability to understand where the gaps are and where the opportunities are. Employers uh, look at a recruitment and look at talent as an investment. And then I want to invest as an employer in people who are ready to be ahead of me and ahead of the situation. And that's what they are looking uh, for. Is there hope for somebody like me who uh, is a liberal arts student? Is there a future for the liberal arts students uh, going forward generations from now, Joseph? Not only the, the as today and tomorrow, we all are, as I said, need to re-educate ourselves and need to rethink what we are doing and re-skill uh, ourselves. So let me give you a concrete example of what's happening. Humanics, as I mentioned, is the integration of three literacies, the tech literacy, data literacy, and human literacy. Human literacy is precisely the focus of what we humans do that machines cannot do. So take the example of uh, uh, someone who studied history, who studied uh, philosophy, English, whatever it is. What is the opportunity for this person in the AI world? This person is extremely well positioned. Why? Because all you need is now to understand you use machines in addition to the human literacy and integrate them. So let me give you a concrete example. We offer for in Seattle, Northeastern uh, University offers in Seattle a program called Align. This program was devised with the tech industry. And they said, we need more people to go into computer science, a new pipeline, but we need people who not only understand tech, but can go beyond that. And so we we recruited, started recruiting students who finished a BA or BS degree, you know, in various institutions. And the employer takes, uh, gives uh, gives them a long-term internship called co-op for 12, 16, or 18 months. And during this period, They uh, acquire also a master's in computer science. Those are the type of students or learners or talent that the employer wants, people who are steeped in human literacy, but now are also becoming steeped in in tech. Somebody who is steeped in one, let's say tech literacy, is not enough anymore. Somebody who is steeped in uh, human literacy has an edge. All she needs to do is integrate and working knowledge 
of the uh, tech literacy and the data literacy. So you're going to be very well positioned. I, I will like bet on you. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, just as we finish up here, though, Joseph, tell me a little bit about why Vancouver is a, a good spot for you guys to open up a campus for Northeastern. We like Vancouver because it's a vibrant community. You know, Vancouver is all about talent. You know, Van- Vancouver wants to nurture talent and wants to attract talent. So we're very attracted to work in Vancouver and to help with this. The second aspect is, as I mentioned earlier, we have a campus in Seattle and there is a Cascadia corridor. This Cascadia partnership is very important to uh, the community and is very important to us. And I think that having a campus in uh, uh, Seattle and a campus in Vancouver will allow us to play a role in uh, the Concordia partnership. And also we like the very much the fact that uh, Vancouver is a global city that is open to the world and also open to the Pacific Rim. So the, it's a hub for talent and we are here to uh, help uh, uh, educate, retain and attract this talent. Well, excellent. Joseph, I want to thank you for joining us thank on the you. show today. Thank you for having me. That's Joseph Iaun. He is president of Northeastern University. That's it for the show today. We'll be back tomorrow. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Share with your friends. It's going to help us reach even more people. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening. So Vancouver's high cost of living, of course, it's well documented, but does the city ultimately deliver on the prices? With us today is Remax managing broker. Uh, He's Wayne Ryan, and I want to thank him for joining us on the show. Wayne, thanks for joining us today to talk all about this new report that you guys have put out here, cracking down, I guess, on the livability scale that we have going on in this particular city. That's correct. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about this report. What are you guys trying to analyze here? Well, I, I guess normally we put out these, uh, you know, quantitative reports that, of course, look at sales prices. Are they up? Are they down? And that's fine. But this is we tried to come up with something a little bit different because more and more buyers are looking in neighborhoods. They're looking for things like, again, uh, access to parks, green space, uh, retail shopping, that type of thing. That That's becoming more and more important for them. And so we tried to, in this report, we tried to look focusing on some of those neighborhoods and also balancing um, availability of inventory and also prices. So it was a little bit of a, a challenge in that we were comparing different neighborhoods. We were comparing detached home neighborhoods with condo neighborhoods. So it's um, a, a little bit of a challenge, but uh, we're pleased with what uh, what came out. Well, it's interesting when you kind of take a holistic approach to a city that has very, you know, disparate elements to it. But uh, from your perspective, what are some of the top neighborhoods within this city? Well, basically, we looked at our, our top three neighborhoods. When you look at, I guess, the, the main, our main criteria, access to green space and parks, walkability, retail or access or availability, rather, to retail stores, public transit. We came up with the, the main street area um, in Vancouver. Uh, and so that's a detached um, house neighborhood primarily. Then we next looked at uh, the next one was the, the West End. And then Carisdale. So again, West End primarily condos, and then back to Carisdale with detached homes. So 
I, I like that. I, I live over on Main Street, so it's not oh, a bad okay. neighborhood to be in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, I know. And we actually put, put in a little uh, what we call the hidden gem. So when we looked at all the neighborhoods, uh, again, Main Street, just the funkiness and the shopping and the restaurants. Uh, again, it was a little bit, um, a little cut above the, some of the other neighborhoods. One of the things I was thinking about, though, I, just a few weeks ago, I took a trip down to Seattle. And I, I mean, it's a very lovely city. But uh, one of the things I, I couldn't help but uh, be, I guess, stuck with what was using our vehicle to get around, like access to public transit just wasn't quite where it's at here in Vancouver, just in terms of even rapid transit doesn't even really exist in Seattle. How important of a factor is something like transit when we're thinking about livability? Because it is one of the things that you do point out that Vancouver is doing quite well here on this report. Oh, without doubt. We're finding it's funny because, again, I love Seattle as well. And I guess back in the 60s, when Vancouver made the decision not to go the freeway route, as Seattle did, it really, um, again, a, a very big difference in our neighborhood. So, um, but yeah, I mean, we are finding, um, as, again, areas around public transit are becoming more and more important. I mean, you look at, in Burnaby, um, a couple of those huge towers that have just been announced, again, right on public transit. Transit. So again, very increasingly important. Uh, it can't all be praised, though, and you, you did allude to this, but one of the challenges uh, that is highlighted here in the report amongst the livability criteria is, say, costs and, and housing affordability. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the things that I think are, are very familiar to Vancouverites living here, but uh, how do we stack up right now according to this particular report? Well, you know, again, I just may, mentioned the top three overall neighborhoods. Now, again, the top three neighborhoods, for we looked at uh, affordability, as you've alluded to, and also the supply of inventory. And, mm. and again, for that, um, the Mount Pleasant area came out as number one. Uh, that downtown area for, again, um, in the condo section. And then the Collingwood, uh, in the detached house market, the Collingwood in Vancouver East. Those came out in terms of a combination of affordability and good supply. So I, I feel as if I am, I keep going back to my, my roots as somebody who lives in Mount Pleasant. I, I'm asking about transit. I, I'm praising the, the area as well. The other thing that is here on the report, and I guess I'm just showcasing what, what a Mount Pleasant kind of dweller I am, but uh, access to say cycling and, and bike lanes. How is Vancouver stacking up right now? You know, we didn't look specifically at bike lanes, but as we know, um, bike lanes are, I mean, they, I mean the, the, the city uh, people have done a wonderful job, you know, in putting those bike lanes. And I think we're obviously lots more to go. So um, like you mentioned, Mount Pleasant, we didn't look specifically at bike lanes, but I think um, I think you'd probably agree. It's probably quite well represented in that area. It's, it's an easy commute to work. And that's yep. another thing that uh, you guys do highlight here is just how important it is that people have easy access to the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's uh, that's very important. So, you know, again, people are working all over the place, so it's kind of hard for everybody to be for it to be convenient. But yeah, those are the those are the focuses we looked at. So I'm wondering, though, if we take a step back and we don't have to dive into kind of the minutiae of other cities across Canada, because I know, of course, we're probably more interested in what's going on in Vancouver. But how does Vancouver stack up with regards to other cities across the country, though? 
Well, you know, I think just our West Coast living, I mean, just that livability. Again, I can't speak for, you know, Alberta and the various cities across the country, but I know for, for Vancouver, those are just high. I mean, bike lanes, uh, from what I gather, nowhere uh, across Canada has the degree of bike lanes that we have in Vancouver. It's just, it's our lifestyle. And so, uh, again, I, I can't really comment um, because my part of the report was focusing in on Vancouver. And I, obviously, there was a comparison with all the different cities across the country. But uh, I think we stack up pretty well. And I guess this will be a completely subjective sort of uh, point of view that I'm asking for here. But uh, one of the questions we always think about is, yes, we have some of the high cost of living here in Vancouver and also the other issues that uh, maybe our average household income doesn't stack up versus what uh, as well in versus other cities. But I'm curious, do you think from your own perspective, your own opinion, that the costs kind of justify themselves when you look at where we are in terms of livability? Are we getting our money's worth being in a city like this? You know, I think so. I mean, again, it's just, it's a market driven. I mean, as you know, uh, prices right now are, I mean, the sales are down. Uh, prices have been edging down. We still have a reasonably strong market, but I mean, we are, you know, we, we have been uh, for the last couple of years in a bit of a price correction. And so I think prices will find their way. And, and as I say, we're, we're just seeing a little softness out there in terms of sales. But again, all the more reason for these new, this new criteria in terms of livability. Excellent. Well, hey, Wayne, I really appreciate you illuminating us with regards to a lot of the new things here in this report. I, I think everybody likes hearing about what makes Vancouver great. As much as we can uh, critique the city, there are lots of excellent things going on here, and this report oh, highlights that. Without doubt, and uh, glad I could help. Excellent. That is Wayne Ryan, Managing Broker at REMAX. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a second. 